Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Deb Spence Cummings to the show. Currently, Deb is the Director of AI ML Operations at Apple, where she leads a global team of about 200 employees. She's a dynamic, outcome-focused strategy and operations executive with 20-plus years of progressive, exceptional experience leading global organizations. Deb is recognized as a leader who affects successful organizational transformation through strategy formulation, operations management, business intelligence, and program management. She is a change agent who drives agile change management by instilling true, authentic team collaboration developing learn-fast teams to sustain employee engagement to rapidly transform. She also has a bachelor's and master's degree in material science and engineering from MIT and an MBA from Kellogg Graduate School of Business here in Chicago. Really excited about having you on the show. Welcome to the show, Deb. Thank you so much, Patrick and Shelley. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Of course. And Deb, uh, can you share with our listeners a little bit more about your role with Apple? Yeah, so first off, I have been with Apple just over a year, and it's been a fantastic experience thus far, huge learning curve, leading a couple of support functions within our artificial intelligence machine learning operations organization at Apple. And so the functions that I lead include business planning, program management, quality, and learning and development. So a couple of support functions for the AIML operations organization. Very nice. And if you could go a little bit deeper on that, what does that mean to be, you know, support functions? Yeah. So we talked a little bit about Patrick prior to the podcast about this notion of, of human in the loop. And If it's anything that um, Apple excels at, it's also ensuring privacy for their customers, but also making sure that Siri, when you engage with Siri, works and recognizes what you request, what you ask for. And some of the critical things that are needed for that are training data. So I would say that for machine learning to happen in order to power Siri, you need humans, right? And that's the whole notion of human in the loop where there is the strategy of combining human and machine intelligence in applications such as Siri that enables AI to do what it does, which is either to increase the accuracy of machine learning models, to reach a target accuracy for a machine learning model, and to combine human and machine intelligence to maximize accuracy and then assist human tasks with machine learning to increase efficiency. So that is the whole concept of human in the loop and where the AI ML operations function is on the human side, where you need to annotate, label raw data in order to feed these machine learning models. And so in terms of what support functions do, we, for example, for 
quality, it's to ensure that whatever our operations teams do in terms of labeling and annotation, that it's done in a consistent manner. What is it that, for example, a training organization would do? Well, it's to ensure that we have the requisite guidelines and instructions in place so that our operations teams can do what they need to do in a repeatable and reproducible way. And then, of course, our business planning teams are responsible for ensuring that we collate the different requirements from our wonderful, great engineers who require this data and making sure that we have these affected in the form of projects with the requisite budget that's needed to get all that work done within the operations team. So that's pretty much in a nutshell what those functions perform. And then, you know, our program office function ensures that any kind of related initiatives, either for our people or or any initiatives related to serving our internal customers better, that we can drive those requisite initiatives accordingly. So that's that's what the support functions do in a nutshell. It's awesome. I think uh, for many people, and I'm I'm a software engineer at heart. There, there's so much uh, kind of a, a black box around this concept, right? I, personally, I always think of that. Remember the '70s version of the Batman show where they had the Bat Pewter and like you'd throw a bunch of stuff in, and then like this little ticker tape would come out, and it's like X equals four, right? <laughs> like, for, and I know that's not what it is, but like I can't get that mental image out of my head. Uh, so that this idea of the support system and structure around the actual AI and ML, right? It it seems a lot. I guess the term I would use is cleaner, right? Of like what that has to look like. Is that is that a fair thing to say that like it, it's really, like you said, what goes in, what comes out. I know that's always been an important element of, of software development, software applications, but it it seems like it's a very, even a higher level of, of criticality of making sure that that information is clean, accurate, uh, documented, annotated, unbiased, uh, supported consistent am i am i hitting important issues here no i i i would agree i i think this is where the function of human annotation and annotation operations it's producing that data but it, for you to get the requisite result that you need it's it has to be done in partnership with our engineers who craft the requirements who take a look at the output of what the operations teams produce and then discern whether this is exactly meets the requirements that they have asked for, or there is opportunity for improvement. This is also where, for example, we have functions like a quality or a training function when there are indeed opportunities for improvements, where there is some action that's that's taken in order to do just that. What is the feedback on something like uh, to improve the models? Is that something that you're in, involved with, like managing and monitoring the models to see if they, uh, and then from an accuracy standpoint or confidence standpoint? That usually comes from our engineers, but of course we, we do obtain feedback in terms of how things are done, whether there is more opportunity for consistency or some other pieces of feedback that may come back to 
a need for us to clarify our guidelines better or some other method by which that work is done. Very cool. I'm also curious, I know that you worked at uh, Navtech in here before this, uh, but if we could go back even a little bit further uh, with your degree in material science, how did you go from material science into AI, ML? Oh my gosh. So that is, that's quite a, a lengthy journey. I'll make sure I do it in a way so it doesn't make me sound as ancient as I really am. <laughs> but so the first couple of degrees I got, that was just a result of being super interested in chemistry, in understanding how to look at materials and understand how we need to exploit and utilize materials for different types of applications. And so I had the opportunity to certainly drive to do that, working in semiconductors for a number of years. And then a few years in, I determined that, boy, it would be great to be more on the technology strategy side. And that's why I decided to go get an uh, MBA. And then, of course, I kind of uh, capitulated to the lemming effect after business school and followed a whole bunch of other people into consulting. And, and that in itself was a, was a very interesting uh, experience. Not because I killed it at consulting, because really I sucked at it. Um, <laughs> and but, but it was a great learning experience in of itself. So, you know, outside of burning through passport pages and having my passport look like a game of checkers. The consulting experience was one where certainly there was stuff to learn about employing strategy, but I also started to understand that being in an organization where there is a cultural match is so important. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line is that while I went into what I thought was very sexy at the time, which was consulting, it really wasn't a match culturally for that specific consulting company. It was, uh, I think they were trying to do a little bit more in terms of diversity and inclusion. And so they probably, you know, started to nail it on the diversity, but not so much on the inclusion. And the bottom line was that I left after, after two years. And what was awesome, though, about that experience was while it kind of smashed at the ego a bit at saying, boy, you know, now I'm kind of I have to leave this organization. What it actually did for me was it made me understand that the possibilities are kind of endless. At that point, I actually did some consulting on the side while I was trying to find a, another job. And this was something that you know, quite frankly, I was not that entrepreneurial in nature. And so because I had to now look for a job, I had to now look at other options just to kind of make sure I could still pay my mortgage. So that in itself was a great learning experience. The second learning experience out of that, and I know this is a little bit of a segue, was that despite the fact I had all these fancy degrees, I really had not exercised my ability to network. And, and when I'm saying network, I'm not just like call a fancy friend. 
to say, hey, do you have a job? It's like, oh, I'm going to have to cold call some people to see what's there. So it's like pound the pavement network. It is cold call network. It's, oh, I'm a friend of a friend of a friend network. Please don't reject my, you know, my, my invitation for a call. And how I ended up at NAFTEC was random and unexpected. I was in church <laughs> one Sunday and I met a college, a previous college friend. We weren't close. And she worked at McKinsey here in Chicago. And she was like, how are you doing? And I said, yeah, you know, this side consulting gig is about to wind down and I'm looking for a job. And it's it's kind of month eight, month nine of looking for a job. And, and she goes, hmm, where have you been looking? And so I reeled off some companies, which included Naftic. And I said, you know, I've sent in my resume several times, no response. And she goes, hmm, well, my partner, her husband is... A vice president at, at Naftec. Let me, you know, let me introduce you because I know they're looking for people. And I tell you what, Patrick and Shelly, uh, within two weeks, I had a job. Nice. Wow. Power of the network. No argument. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible. So within a week, I got a series of interviews. And within the next week, I had an offer. And that's how I started at Naftec. And that was, you know, Naftec and its various reincarnations of itself, which ended up being here. That was, you know, the start of a 17-year career with that company. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. And it's a, it's a Naftec and, and here is such a, an integral part of Chicago's technology history, yes. right? Yes. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's really a, it's right there with the Motorola's, right? and Bell Labs and, and those types yes. of places. So it's, it's really, it's, that's really exciting. It's a, and like, I think again, not to age you or myself, uh, when all that was occurring, there wasn't this thing called LinkedIn that you could go and connect with no. people, right? Just even finding the people to connect with yeah. was actually pretty hard. Right. That's right. I ended up, I had a wonderful, Lady Anne Browning, that was her name. She was at Kellogg at the time. And she was so helpful to say, okay, look at your alumni network. Look here, look here. Because literally, I was like like a spoiled toddler. I you know, I came out of MIT with my little fancy degrees. I came out of Kellogg with a third little fancy degree. And I was expecting the heavens to open and rain opportunities. And that was not <laughs> going to happen. Okay. <laughs> it, it's it's so true. And like the the idea, the thing is that it really comes down to is like they'd like to rain the jobs on you. They don't know how to find you either. Right. right? <laughs> that's right. And it's like that's like half the battle is like, OK, we, we're looking for like, you know, two meteorites are going through space. And somehow we've got to like create a yeah. collision where it's like the mathematics of that are pretty terrible. Right. So <laughs> to your point of like, get out there and find more meteorites. Right. And like. Let's make some collisions happen, right? But it's, <laughs> that's it. you got to do something to interrupt those patterns of like, uh, you know, horrible story of somebody that uh, I heard this. Yeah. Second, so who knows if it's true, but somebody used to say <laughs> that when they got a stack of resumes, they'd cut it in half 
and then throw half away. Oh, good Lord. And somebody asked like, <laughs> well, why do you do that? And he's like, well, I don't want to hire anybody who's not lucky. <laughs> oh my! I God. don't know if that's true. I have no idea if that's true, but wow. mathematically speaking, though, it's just as smart as going through each one of them, right? I mean, there's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a messy business, right? It's, it's a messy. And I mean, Shelly does this professionally yeah. trying to connect talented people with great opportunities. And I mean, it's really hard to find that kismet moment for both entities that like yeah. at this perfect moment, the right job for the yeah. right person at the right organization. And right. But this is why it's so important that, you know, now that people have all of these tools at their disposal, the LinkedIn's all of this good stuff to maintain your network. Yeah. Whether it's a coffee ever so often or something like that and not to be disingenuous about it, but it's, you know, don't wait until now you're faced with, oh my gosh, I have to find a job in, in X time to now try and do all of this reaching out. You're right. I mean, we have all the technology in the world now, but it still goes back to relationships and exactly and trust. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, Patrick, going back to your question about how you come from a material science degree to, to whatever. I mean, the bottom line is, that those degrees, they ultimately, they, they teach you how to think and they teach you how to learn and how to get up to speed with new stuff, right? And, and that's just so important. For those of us who have been in the workplace for X number of years, technology has changed significantly. I mean, hell, when I interned <laughs> and worked for Intel, I, I don't even want to tell you what, what X86 I was working on that's going to talk. Yeah, I think I can guess. You know, oh my lord. So <laughs> I mean, that was that was a pre power PC chips. Yeah. Was it? Yeah, okay. I mean, it was oh dear lord. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I remember the the power PC was going to dominate the world. Just going to take over. Yeah. And so I do I think it's a, it's really interesting component of one other thought that you touched on that I think is really great is like getting out into the world of seeing what potentially exists, right? Getting out of your silo yeah. and that preconceived notion of like, this is, this is your direct path to, you know, your next step. Right. And I think that's really very exciting to hear you say that of like that moment when you were doing consulting, even though it wasn't exactly for you, it did give you a sense of like, there's such a bigger world. And I think from an engineering standpoint, I, I have a CS degree and, and there's a lot of like, this is, yes. this is your path. And, you know, so it, tell us a little bit more about how that happened. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit more. So let's rewind back. I, I joined NAFTEC in product management, focused on voice recognition of all things. And I, the data on that is amazing. Okay. To think about voice in 2003, 2004. I know like I'm a big voice advocate. I still think voice is going to take over because I believe Star Trek is actually the indicator of all things that are going to happen. Oh, I love Star Trek. <laughs> right. They don't look at the communicator. They speak to it. Right. Yes. And so, but anyways, I, I hate to interrupt, but I just, for our listeners, I just want to give some context of like, sometimes when we hear these technologies, like voice is such a, like a normal yes. thing to speak, like to hear right now. But back then, there really wasn't a very, there were some really bad solutions. 
exactly like if you had an accent could it recognize what you were saying or is the application just purely you know text to speech so this was voice recognition for mapping so now you can have any kind of wonderful voice telling you to turn left turn right you've reached your destination on all this good <laughs> stuff but but, but at, at the time it was we were like in five countries and then over time we expanded as NAFTEC but just to go back in, in terms of the progression I I did product management then I did time in mapping operations then I started focusing more on planning and I took on a bunch of different roles, which over time went from mapping operations to quality back into operations and planning, then sales operations. And then when I left Navtech here, I left in leading a product operations function. And what was great about that experience was that I was just able to transition into very different roles and was given the opportunity to really come up to speed, like sales operations. I, right. you know, I, I didn't know a bloody thing. I mean, right. I didn't know a pipeline from long-term revenue, but. Yeah. Your definition of a pipeline was literally a piece of concrete that had fluid going <laughs> through it. Material, right? It was right. made out of materials and there was some science there. <laughs> Right. Because there's material and science. They always right. go together. Exactly. <laughs> um, and and so there was actually some method to the madness. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about what prompted that progression. So over time, I figured, you know, operations is my thing. And one day, one day I want to be, you know, I concluded with the help of an executive coach. So, you know, a few years into my career, I decided, I determined that, you know what, it would be great to get an executive coach for two main reasons. One, just to have somebody who can kick my, can I say it, kick my ass into thinking through what it is that I wanted to do with my career and to spend some time thinking about that. And the second reason was, from a personal transformation perspective, I was reputed to being very smart, but super confrontational. And so there were there were some things I needed to fix with myself, be a little bit kinder, gentler um, in terms of my delivery. And I like how you lowered your voice when you said that. <laughs> Right. And and to really, to frankly, kind of fix my, kind of fix my brand. Right. So, so those, you know, that was kind of the motivation to really have someone to really help be that external guide. And so I'm so thankful. I had like a phenomenal coach, Trudy Bourgeois, who just really just, you know, really told me about myself and taught me to be a lot more introspective. I can't give her the full credit. I also had a boss who was a phenomenal coach and he's actually still at here, uh, Luther Siebert. And he runs Quality at Here. He was my boss for about seven years. And that person, the currency of being able to provide feedback, that is certainly a learning that I even, you know, have taken and 
you know, I do with my teams and, and do with people that I mentor as well. So that was just very critical. But to, just to go back to the whole career progression piece, when when Trudy started kicking my tail. You can say ass. You can say ass. <laughs> okay. Like when Trudy kicked my ass into thinking about what it is I wanted to do when I when I truly grew up. Right. I mean, I, I determined ultimately I want to be like a, you know, a chief operating officer. I'm not there yet. Okay. But that's ultimately where I'd love to love to be at some point. And to do that, you know, I had a ton of operations experience, a ton of cost side experience, but not a lot of revenue side experience. So after all of my stints in quality and operations, I determined, you know what, I probably should try and do a stint in sales. And, but how am I going to do that? How, how, how? And thanks to my network, there was a colleague of mine, Olga Selena, who I think you know. I do, yeah. Actually. Yes, awesome Olga, who always had her ear to the ground while she was at here. And there were some changes coming. And she kind of pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, you said you've put it out in the ether that you're looking for some sales side experience. I told us such to, to our chief operating officer at the time. And she said, well, you know what, there's, there's an opportunity to lead sales operations. And while you don't have sales operations experience, you have a lot of knowledge about the business and the the GM who is coming in for the Americas. She will help you with the sales operations side and help you get up to speed, but you need to tell her about the business. And so that was how that partnership was forged and how I ended up getting that role and being in sales operations not only for the Americas, but then ultimately leading global sales operations for the company for the better part of three or four years before moving on to my final role with here. So look, long-winded point is that it's making sure people understand where you want to go. It's cultivating and continuing to cultivate your network, whether you're in a company, whether it's external or, or an internal search, so that people understand where it is that you want to go. And I think the third thing is you continue to work on your brand. So if I was still the super spicy person that I was when I was younger, perhaps it wouldn't have worked out. But just working also on some of the things I needed to work on and being very introspective about that was also a big factor as well. I don't even know if I did. I answer your question. I, I talk so much. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's and yeah. it's. I think it's <laughs> what we were talking about: getting out of your comfort zone and like trying new things. And I, I think your your point is totally valid in that being on the value creation side, not the cost control side. But then, you know, as you as you know, and uh, many people don't. Sales is still a series of processes and operations that need oh. to be. Right. It, yes. It's still engineering. I would look at those sales guys and I would think oh, they're swanning away mm. on the golf course, swanning <laughs> here, flying there. It is tough work. It's a grind. It, it is. is a tough work. And for the good ones, the bad ones are brutal. <laughs> they're just god awful. But the ones that to do to be good at it, it's a performance art. It really, it takes yeah. a lot of physical yeah. and mental discipline. You, you really, it's a very, yes. I don't think as an engineer, I like my desk. I like my chair. 
right? I would do the same thing all day long. And if I got it wrong, <laughs> nobody noticed, right? Yeah. Nobody was aware that like my while loop was not the most efficient while loop God ever created, right? <laughs> From like a sales standpoint, but still to your point is like, it's still a flow of value of like, and it requires engineering yes. and removing of, yes. of barriers and friction. And, and it's still an engineering question. Like it's still applying yeah. a scientific methodology and mindset. Like you said, like what you get out of an engineering degree is really that engineering. How you think. Right. Mindset of like how to learn and how to think. Take big problem, tear it into a series of little problems, analyze little problems, right? <laughs> Find the biggest. It's really like, Find the biggest bottleneck, defeat biggest bottleneck, move on. Yeah. I was just going to say that thank you for sharing all that. And with your experience with the executive coach and with the great boss that you had, um, has that changed how you manage and interact with your team? Oh, absolutely. I I view the managers I've had and, and the good, the bad, the ugly certainly have really taught me how I want to engage, how I want to lead, and in some cases, what not to do. And as I had indicated before, focusing on the leaders that really, I I just got really fantastic examples. And I just, I, I was incredibly fortunate. Luther was one, certainly the GM of the Americas that I worked for. Sandy Hogan was also phenomenal. And, you know, with Luther, for example, just learning how to coach, how to really understand when to get into the details when I need to help with my team, and then when to operate at a higher level. And that was also just some phenomenal experience that I cultivate with his leadership. And then with, you know, leaders like a Sandy, for example, just understanding how to really develop that gravitas, how to communicate and over-communicate when needed in terms of goals, in terms of what key results you want to garner from your team. And don't get me wrong, Luther was the same way. But the good leaders that I had really nailed how to coach, how to motivate their team, as well as keeping the team's eyes on the prize in terms of objectives and how to drive to those critical outcomes in order to yield value as an organization. And that was just phenomenal. I should also share just how I ended up at Apple as well, because that was also kind of a fortuitous kind of networking thing. And so, you know, when I started looking for other opportunities where, you know, how can I continue to advance in operations, working on something new like AIML, the opportunity really presented itself as a result of my current boss being part of my network. So she was someone that I worked with at Navtech and we we never worked directly with each other for, for a long time, but we knew of each other. Uh, she had reached out over a number of years just saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm scaling up, I'm scaling up maps. You know, would you want to come to Cupertino? I was not interested in moving to California. And then several years later, she would, but she would check in ever so often. She would check in ever so often, just in her phenomenal networking way. And then COVID happened. And with COVID came the opportunity for the opportunities to kind of morph a little bit differently. And 
in this case, you know, by then she was running AI ML operations, certainly a distributed organization. And I had the opportunity to do this role while working from Chicago. And thanks to her, she made that happen. And a myriad of discussions and, and interviews later, we were able to make it happen. So just thanks to the network again for yielding this opportunity. I agree with you. It's really important to build your network. And, but I also think you touched on something else about being a lifelong learner. You're constantly seeking other people's help, right? You're getting outside of your own box, trying to figure out like, how do I improve? And as somebody who, as you generally term spicy, um, definitely I would <laughs> fall into that category. Uh, generally, it was not spicy. It was uh, some other term, gigantic <laughs> jerk. Man, is that guy angry? You know, what did his dad do to him? You know, the norm. But the the end result is, being that lifelong learner and in pursuit of improvement, I think that's, you know, because you talk about it a number of times of the tangential relationships to the direct relationships that actually create that. So somebody else is out there saying you should meet Deb, right? Like you said, Olga advocating for you. That doesn't happen unless you are a hard worker, you're performing at what you're doing and that people see that you, you want to learn. Cause I think, we can give off signals that we like to learn and that we're willing to take risks and that, you know, jumping in the deep end of the pool doesn't frighten us. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, that's part of like, you know, you, you, you're wired uh, a little bit for those opportunities to happen. I think that that's, that's also part when we, we don't want to take credit. Yeah. You know, you're a humble person. And I think that's what people are also attracted to. Uh, you clearly accomplished quite a bit and there's a reason why, they put you in charge of global sales. This wasn't like some tiny little team off to the side of like, here, you get four like sales dudes. And like, that's it. You, these are serious roles with serious, serious impact. And so I think it's also good advice for everybody that if, if you really want to accelerate the career, focus on being really good at your current job, right? And, and then yeah. uh, people will start yeah. looking at it. If you're not willing to do your current job well, I had this manager at uh, TGI Fridays. I know that where's he going with this? I got that. Uh, <laughs> but like, I, I like I, it. I was working lunch. And like, if anybody's ever worked uh, lunch for like a restaurant, you don't make any money at lunch. Nobody tips for lunch. You barely make enough money to come back for the, the, yesterday, tomorrow's lunch. Right. And so the manager's like getting us all uh, ready for the day. And he's like, all right, everybody come in, come in, come in. And I wasn't really that good at, you mentioned you're not good as a consultant. I was a terrible waiter. I just, I couldn't do it. It was just <laughs> something about, you know, having flair and having a positive attitude being required. I'm a happy guy when you're required to for a job. I'm suddenly not a happy guy. It's a very weird dynamic, but yeah, the manager said this critical thing as we we're all kind of like mulling around and nobody was paying attention. He's like, Hey, and he kind of stopped. He was very curt. He was always a very pleasant guy. And he's like, hey, I know you guys all think that this is a waste of a time for you and this is job is a joke. But the truth of the matter is the way that you approach this job is probably how you're going to approach most of the jobs. And I know you think you're only going to care when it matters, but how you treat this job is probably how you're going to treat that job. Huh? And I remember instantly thinking profound. What mistake made you come here? Right. <laughs> like what what thing <laughs> happened in your life where you're the assistant manager? Not to pick on assistant managers at TGI Fridays, but like it was profound 
And I re- that stuck with yeah. me from that moment on of like, yeah, he's right. You're not taking this seriously and you think it's beneath you. And the truth of the matter is you're always going to feel that way until you, you, you know, and you're going to be stuck in that rut if you, if you don't change your mindset of like, no, I, I got to be great at this job to get the next one. Yeah. Awesome. I'm glad I got to wrap up at the end because it's all about me. As everybody knows. <laughs> Uh, you, know. <laughs> you still have all your pins from TGI Fridays that you I don't, but I, I'll tell you, like my little tip tray, <laughs> love it. Uh, House of Pain was a very large component of because you had to <laughs> put little things on there and like House of Pain, you know, jump around was like the hot song back then. Oh, I remember. Yeah, jump. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you know, Northwest suburban Irish kid, you know, it, it connected in ways that just weren't really going to happen until like, you know, Eminem showed up. That song translated everywhere. It really, and it still is very still a great song. Are you kidding? Well, like Wisconsin still plays it every game, right? It's yeah. Yeah. It's, there's so many good songs. We're not even going to get on that subject. <laughs> Early nineties hip hop was without a doubt the best. There's it's, it's, I agree. I think I'm going to take, I'm going to play it on my home pod right now. Uh, you know, just a little young MC, right? If you're oh, Stone yeah. Cold Munchin. Bust a move. That's right. Yes. You know, oh. <laughs> stand up a wall like your point Dexter, right? Like everybody's done it. <laughs> now you really know how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's safe to say nobody got this far into the episode. <laughs> but this will be a little secret just for us. <laughs> All right. I love it. So to wrap, <laughs> Deb, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate thanks, it. Uh, you're, you're a tremendous person and what a great personality. I mean, yeah. it's not a shock. You're a success. Thank you. You're bright and funny and really easy to talk to. So uh, I, I would love to talk more about your leadership skills and how you deal with other spicy leaders, uh, the younger views oh. that you run into, because I think that's a whole different dynamic. That's another podcast. Let's do it. I smell a part two coming. <laughs> we should do it. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. This this was great. It was so lovely talking to, to you, Patrick, and you, Shelly. I, I appreciate the invitation. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Absolutely. Just wanted to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time uh, to join us. And a special thanks to those who hung out to get the rundown on the early 90s hip hop hit list and if everybody wants a specific list you can email Shelly at I'm just kidding and if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast or find us on iTunes Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts this episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32 